Um, I don't use this term lightly um, when I say this, but I hate stink bugs. Don't you? I mean, I know we talked about love. You know, I love pizza, and I love football, and I love this. It's, you know, people just throw that word around. And sometimes, I don't know that hate is thrown around equally, but, you know, that truly... But I hate stink bugs. I mean, when I first moved to Lynchburg in 2000, um, it was ladybugs, and they were everywhere. Um, Tracy can tell you some stories about the twins crawling around and and doing things with ladybugs that that are just disgusting as little six-month-old, year-old infants. But, But after the ladybugs, then came the... The stink bugs. I mean, it was like the ladybugs were gone, and then the stink bugs uh, rolled in. Um, they're not native to to America, if you if you know that. Uh, they were unintentionally introduced, like a whole lot of stuff, uh, to the U.S. in Pennsylvania in 1998. 1998. So that's just two years before we moved here. Not very. Uh, very long ago, and they wreaked havoc um, ever since. They reportedly caused $37 million in damage just in apple crops alone in the mid-Atlantic last year. Um, uh, They created a whole other um, booming part of our economy, stink bug traps and, and all kinds of other things that don't work, by the way. I've tried them. I put my coat on and, and, and found one there. I've stepped on them. I've had them fly in my mouth. I found them on my bed everywhere. And, and if the bugs weren't bad enough, I mean, bugs don't creep me out. Maybe they do you. But, but if, if having them in your house wasn't bad enough, it's the stench that, that gets me. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When you try to remove them, you know, they let off that putrid odor that's, that's all too familiar. Imagine all of those stink bugs were frogs. And that there weren't just hundreds of them, which I can find hundreds in my home in, in the fall when they come, but imagine was millions of them with no place to get away from them. They typically, uh, stink bugs are attracted to, you know, uh, when it's hot and and, and usually light colors, and so you'll find them in the windows and those kind of things. But, but there's usually a place that you can, you can go. You go to the basement or you can go somewhere. Imagine that, that there's not just hundreds, but there's millions of them, and there's nowhere to go to be able to, to get away from them. And imagine all of those frogs die right where, right where they're at, and think of the smell that they would create rather than the, the stink bugs. If you could do that, you might get some kind of idea of what the second plague was, was like. As we looked at last week, there's ten plagues overall in our story, and each of them build in severity. And, and, and there's three different types of plagues. The first three are irritations. In this one, the frogs, falls within the, the irritations. And, and then plague 4, 5, and 6 bring destruction. They destroy things. And then, as you know, Pharaoh doesn't listen, and, and plague 7, 8, and 9, and 10 bring death. So, 
each of those plagues, God displays His supremacy over these so-called bogus gods of, of Egypt. And, I mean, you think about it. God could have easily delivered the Hebrews any way He wanted, but He chose to do so through a series of, of plagues. And He did that for that method for educational purposes. He would deliver His people... And he will demonstrate his control over the gods of Egypt so that both Egypt and Israel will know that the Lord, he is God. Now up to this point, we've seen Pharaoh be confronted by God, a direct confrontation from Moses and Aaron. Here is a direct representative of God and here is a prophet who speaks on his behalf. We've seen Pharaoh confronted by by God. We've seen God confirm that con- uh, confrontation through, through a miracle, the staff that, that becomes a snake and even gobbles up the, the, the staff of the, of the magicians. We've seen when that confrontation failed, consequences come. That was the, when the Nile turned to, turned to blood. Now the Lord begins to turn up the heat and, and we're going we're gonna to see today that He finally gets Pharaoh's attention. To where he didn't before. You remember how all the, the at least the other two uh, sections end. Pharaoh just doesn't listen. He just turns his back and pays no attention. At the plague of the Nile, it literally says Pharaoh returns to his house. Big deal. Well, this morning he's going to listen. And Tim read for us Exodus. We're going to be covering verses uh, 1 through 15 of chapter 8. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. And we're going to be be looking at verses 1 through 15, just this second plague. Let me show you the outline of the story so you'll see how it flows. It begins very similar to, to the other two encounters. First you have God, He speaks in verse 1 of Exodus 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses. He tells him to go to Pharaoh and say something to him, and he tells him what he's supposed to say and the plague that he's going to bring. And then you have, that's in verses 1 through 5, the Lord speaking. And then in verse 6, you have the exact same thing that you find in the other encounters. You have Moses and Aaron, they obey. Verse 6, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters. They, they obey. And then in verse 7 through 11... You have Pharaoh and his magicians responding. And the magicians did so, just like they did in the other two encounters. And they brought frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses. That's very different. While everything else is similar, that's very different from the other two encounters. Pharaoh actually buckles under the pressure of God's judgment and proposes a bargain with God. He calls on Moses. Rather than rejecting God, paying no attention to Moses and sending him away, he actually calls Moses back to him and he asks Moses to pray for him. In verses 12 through 15, record Moses' prayer and God's answer, and then the story ends with Pharaoh's response, his final response to the whole thing in verse 15. 
once the difficulty had passed, Pharaoh returns to his normal way of of living and doing business. I'm sure you've seen people respond to God like that. Maybe you've responded to God like that before. When consequences come, whenever they become too great for us to bear, we we try to negotiate with with God. We the intoxicated man says, "Lord, if you'll just get me home, I'll never drink again." The the student who gets caught doing something at at school says, "Oh God, I'm sorry. If you'll keep my parents from finding out, I'll never do that again." I prayed many times as an unsaved man, God, just just give me one more chance. Only to receive that one more chance and go right back to doing what I was doing that got me in the mess to begin with. A person who does that may be turning toward God in times of trial, but that's very different from turning to God. You understand the difference? A person who turns toward God in a time of trial, is acknowledging that God has power, that He has the ability to change things. But that's very different than than surrendering to Him or acknowledging Him as, as the Lord. And God begins to deal with Pharaoh. He confronts, He brings consequences. And now when they get too hard, Pharaoh attempts to bargain with the Almighty. There's only one problem with that tactic. God will grant mercy, but He does not negotiate, does He? His terms are unmerited grace and absolute submission to His Lordship. Anyone who comes His way will find a Savior, but those who will not come on those terms, Jesus is both Savior and Lord... They won't come at all. And today we're going to see what happens when God gets our attention through the story of Pharaoh and when we attempt to bargain with him. So just the proposition of the title, the theme of this plague is bargaining with God. And we're going to see it in three parts. We begin with God's glory, God's glory-aimed plague in verses 1 through 5. Here's verse 1 of chapter 8. This is exactly seven days after the first plague. You can see that back in verse 25. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river, and the Lord spoke to Moses. He sends Moses back to Pharaoh to repeat his demands. God's demands never change. We'll see that over and over and over. But the pressure that he applies when we refuse his demands can change. And this time when Moses repeats God's demands, he also issues a warning. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. And here's the warning. But if you refuse, that's also new. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will send a plague. I will smite all your territory with with frogs. Lots of them. Now, it's hard to say what Pharaoh thought. Because you're going to hear in just a minute that just like the Nile, frogs were worshipped. There was a deity. So, 
when Pharaoh hears this, it's hard to think what goes through his mind. I mean, you know, okay, I'm going to smite you with a great plague. And what's the plague? I'm going to send you frogs. That doesn't sound too intimidating whenever you think about it, especially whenever a frog represented one of your deities. But God here describes it as a plague. It's a specific word. It's a word used in the Old Testament which means striking a blow. It's a serious action. And verses 3 and 4 describe the extent. Look at verse 3. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly. There will be an abundance of them. They're going to be everywhere. In your house, in your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses, the houses of your servants. And they're going to go upon everyone on your people. Verse 4, And the frogs shall come upon you, that's Pharaoh, your people, and all of your servants. Verse 6 says, When Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, the frogs came up and covered the land. All of those words are emphasizing the extent of the plague. They went everywhere. They got in every nook and cranny. It says that they, they hid in their pots and in their cooking ovens. During the day when it got hot, they, they bloated and died, leaving a stench that permeated everything. At night, the noise of their croaking was deafening to where they couldn't even sleep. If you could find a place to lay down, there was no place to lay down without squishing a frog. I mean, literally, they were everywhere. That's what he's saying. It was a national catastrophe. Listen to Psalm 78, verse 4. God sent frogs that devastated them. It's a word that means it's a catastrophe. I think this is one of God's comical miracles. If you can find any, anything funny about a plague, you would find it in this one. As I said, frogs are not particularly dangerous, but they are, they are a nuisance. And the text includes some, some humorous touches. Verse 3 it says that the frogs ended up in the ovens and the kneading bowls or the kneading troughs. Can you picture an Egyptian mother pulling out her mixing bowls and screaming when she discovers a frog in the dough and the kids behind there laughing about that? I mean, my kids, specifically Jared, loves to scare his mother. He loves to hide behind things. And here, the kids probably loved it, at least at first. The frogs even hopped into Pharaoh's royal chambers. Again, Psalm 105, verse 30 says, The land teemed with frogs, and they went up into the bedrooms of the rulers. Can you imagine Pharaoh lying down for a nap and then jumping to his feet because something croaked under his pillow? Philip Ryken noted, Some of the frogs had the audacity to jump on his royal person. Moses declares this in verse 4, and the frogs shall come upon you. That's upon Pharaoh's person. Reichen said in Great Britain it's considered a serious breach of protocol for a commoner to touch the member of a royal family, all the more so in Egypt where Pharaoh was considered one of the gods. In all of that, God is reminding Pharaoh that he could touch him with judgment at any moment, at any place. There is no way that Pharaoh can escape from the long arm 
the finger of God. It's also an attack on, a, on the Egyptian frog deity. If you've ever seen any Indiana Jones movies or anything like that with Egypt, you'll see these Egyptian deities. And I used to be scared to death of them as a kid, especially that Anubis thing that looked like a Doberman pincher, you know, the dog. Okay. Well, they have the body of a human, but they have the head of an animal. Well, the head of, of, of a frog was on a specific deity. It was a goddess. It was a female. The goddess Hecht. And she was pictured with the head of a frog and the body of a woman. And the frog represented the goddess. And therefore, the frogs were sacred. And they couldn't be harmed. It's, it's very similar to like you find in India today where, where cows are sacred or holy. And there's places in India, there's places in Africa, there's places in Asia where people are starving to death, but steak is walking right down the street and they won't eat it, you know? The same thing here. I don't know if you'd want to eat a frog unless you like frog legs, but the, the Egyptians, with all of these frogs, they couldn't do anything to them. Even when they hopped right up onto their kitchen table, they had to, you know, shoo them off. Back to our example. Imagine if you couldn't kill a stink bug, but you had to let them overrun your home. You couldn't do anything to them. And there's millions of them. James Montgomery Boyce said, since the goddess Hecht was embodied in a frog... There was nothing the Egyptians could do about this horrible and ironic plurification, I butchered that, sorry, of the goddess. They were forced to loathe the symbols of their depraved worship, but they couldn't kill them. And when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countrysides into A stinking horror. Charles Spurgeon said how appropriate it was for God to plague the Egyptians in this way. These be thy gods, O Egypt. Thou shalt have enough of them. Pharaoh himself shall pay a new reverence to these amphibians, as the true God is everywhere present all around us in our bedchambers and in our streets. So shall Pharaoh find every place filled with what he chooses to call divine. Well, Pharaoh did get enough of the frogs, and so he calls on Moses to intercede for him. second thing I want you to see is Pharaoh's self-aimed bargain begins in verse 7. Pharaoh's self-aimed bargain says, And the magicians did so with their enchantments. This is after Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. They did the same thing as they did with the Nile. They worked their demonic arts and, and all they're able to produce are more frogs. They only increase the suffering of the Egyptians. How's that for a priest? It's, it serves as another illustration to the Egyptians. And we just read, and we're going to see next time, that they're going to, they're going to, it's going to come to a point where they can't reproduce. 
This is an illustration to the Egyptians. If you follow false gods, they can only increase your suffering. They can never relieve it. But look at verse 8. After the uh, magicians do this, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. When the situation got so bad, Pharaoh does something that he hasn't done before. He calls for Moses and Aaron and asks for prayer. The word entreat means to beg for relief. It tells us how bad it's gotten for Pharaoh, how Pharaoh is looking at the, at the situation. I mean, he's desperate. This is not something that, that, that you would do if you are the, the most powerful man on the planet and consider yourself a god. You, you don't call upon the enemy. You don't call upon someone who has challenged you in your court publicly and ask them to pray to their god to relieve your suffering. You don't do that unless it's serious. And it's serious in Pharaoh's mind. He got the message. I want you to notice two things about Pharaoh's request in verse 8. First thing I want you to notice is he doesn't pray himself. He asks Moses to pray. And the second thing I want you to notice is that he knows God's name. He calls him by name. Pharaoh called for Moses and says, entreat or pray to, make supplication to Yahweh. Now, what's God's whole purpose in all this? That He may be known in Egypt. Pharaoh is forced to acknowledge God's power, God's might, but he also acknowledges here that he doesn't have a relationship with Him. He knows God's power, but he refuses to acknowledge God's person. Pharaoh is declaring where he stands with God. He needs something from God, but he can't go to God himself. He recognizes that God has power, but he, re, he doesn't have a relationship with this God. So he has to go to Moses. Where do you stand with God? Do you know he's powerful? Oh, you know, I... I don't know about this whole Jesus bit, but I know there's a God out there, and I know He's really powerful. I know I didn't come from monkeys. I look around and I see there's something out there. I just don't know who it is. Where do you stand with God? Do you, do you acknowledge that, he, that there, there's deity, that He's powerful? He can do great things? What about the relationship part? That God who has power, that God who created things, has a name. <laughs> His name's Jesus. If the only time you pray is when you get in trouble, that tells you something. It tells you something about that power in person thing that's going on here with, with Pharaoh. God is more than just powerful. He is personal. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about the God of the Bible. He's not capricious like, like the false god Allah, who you don't know where you stand with him. You've got to do all kinds of crazy things, sacrificial things, in order to get his attention and hope that you might be able to, to get in. And if you do the wrong thing, he's going to strike you with a lightning bolt. He's not an aloof god that just stands back where you have to 
you, he just winds the world up and, and lets it go. He's not like Buddha. He's not like the Hindu gods that, that you, have to, you have to earn the way, earn the right to be heard by them. He's a personal God. Right after, think about this. Right after God declares He creates, the pinnacle of His creation is He makes human beings, He makes man in His own image so that He can have a relationship with them. He communicates with them. He walks with them. He talks with them. God is powerful. But God is also personal. And He wants you to encounter both. God will at times reveal His power... Sometimes that's through consequences. And when He does, it's so that you will acknowledge Him personally. What's the difference between knowing God is and, and who God is? Knowing Him versus what He's capable of? Well, let me say it this way. Did Jesus die on a cross? Or did His death atone for your sin? See the difference? Those who know only what God can do, but don't know Him personally, don't have a relationship with Him, will inevitably try to negotiate. And look at the bargain here that Pharaoh tries to strike in verse 8. He calls on Moses and Aaron and says, Entreat the Lord that He may take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, here's the bargain. If you pray for me, and the Lord takes away the frogs, then I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Lord, if you will do just this one thing for me, then I will never do that again. If then. You don't see it specifically in the words of the text, but that's exactly what Pharaoh is, is doing here. And Pharaoh doesn't have a leg to hop on, as they say. Ha ha. God has already foretold Moses that he would force Pharaoh to let the people go. And I want you to notice what Pharaoh says here. It's not just to sacrifice and then return to serve Pharaoh. God will lead his people out, not just to go out three days and sacrifice, and then return to being a slave of Egypt, serving Pharaoh. God's going to lead his people out to the land that they may worship. Notice what God says that they may serve me, back in verse 1, they may worship me. And Pharaoh here says, if you pray, and if the Lord takes the frogs away, I'll let them go sacrifice. But he has no intention of letting them go permanently. God says, these are my people, and they'll serve me, not you. Well, Pharaoh's bargain is an attempt to ease his own difficulty, not acknowledge God's right to rule. And while Pharaoh's bargain is, is aimed at self, Moses' faith that he expresses in his response to Pharaoh is, is aimed toward, toward God's glory. Here's the third and final point. you got... Moses' God-aimed faith. Okay, God brings this plague for a purpose. It's not because he's a mean God. 
It's aimed at His glory to reveal who He is. That Egypt, that Israel and Egypt would know that I am the Lord, that I am, I am God in the land. That's, that, that's His purpose. God could have done it anyway, but He chooses to go through plagues to, to teach. Pharaoh's self-aimed bargain, his whole purpose is just to re- release the difficulty. And I'll do the minimum amount I've got to do to release the difficulty, or I'll promise to do anything until it's relieved. Then Moses expresses some God-aimed faith. Before, we talked about how Moses, his faith was put into action. He obeyed. He did. It was all of the verbs that Moses went, Moses called, Moses did this. It was action. Here, Moses, what Moses knows about God, what Moses believes about God, is highlighted. Look at verse 9. Moses puts it right back on Pharaoh and asks him to supply the time frame for when he... He wanted God to answer the the prayer. Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and from your houses, that they may remain in the river only. Why did Moses do that? He tells us in verse 10, He did as further proof that God truly was the one in control. There's no way, if Pharaoh picks the time, there's no way that Pharaoh could say, oh, well, that was just a coincidence. I mean, Pharaoh is going to say when the frogs will leave, and Moses will pray, and that's exactly when they will, will leave. He picked the time when God was to intervene. Look at verse 10. So he said, tomorrow... And Moses said, let it be according to your word, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord. Now watch this, our God. He didn't say your God. There's no one like Yahweh, our God, Israel's God. It's brilliant. Moses tells Pharaoh exactly why he lets him choose the time. What's perplexing at first is Pharaoh's answer. Look at verse 10. Pharaoh agrees and he answers tomorrow. He answers quickly. I mean, there's no deliberation here. It's like, okay, you tell me when you want me to pray and when you want, and Pharaoh's tomorrow. Why did he say the following day? I mean, I'd be like, now, pray right now. Get down on your knees right now. I want these things gone. Pharaoh doesn't because I think he hoped another alternative would come up in the meantime. Maybe they'll leave on their own. Maybe something else will happen. I won't have to further humble myself, but it doesn't. It happened just as Moses asked. Look at verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. Do not miss verse 13. It should be in red, bold highlights in your Bible. Pay attention. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Did you pick up the significance there? 
You remember the first two encounters, what was highlighted? Moses and Aaron's obedience. And it was highlighted by repeating, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. You remember how I mean, it was repeated at least twice? You know what's emphasized here? God doing according to the words of Moses. It's nothing short of amazing that God would even do that, much less highlight it. He answers Moses' prayer. The sovereign king of the universe not only listens to his servants, but he responds to their requests. Now I want you to notice that there's no place in this passage where God tells Moses that Pharaoh is going to ask for prayer. You remember in the first part? You're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to give him the ultimatum, this is what I'm going to do, you're going to stretch, it out, stretch out your arm, the frogs are going to come, period. God doesn't tell Moses at all that Pharaoh is going to come back and ask him for prayer. There's also no place where God tells Moses what to pray or what to say to Pharaoh. Moses simply knows God and he prays accordingly. He prays according to what he knows about God. And it's exactly what you do when you don't know what to pray, right? When you don't know specifically what to ask God, you go to God and you claim who He is and what He's promised. What's even more revealing, I think, of Moses' faith is that he tells Pharaoh God will answer before he even prays. Look back at verse 10. I mean, Moses hasn't prayed here yet. Pharaoh answers tomorrow, and then Moses said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people, and they shall remain in the river only. I mean, he tells him God's going to answer before he even prays. It will be so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Do you see his faith in that? It's not in his prayer. It's not in the fact that he believed God so much that, that you know, he was claiming it before he ever even prayed. That, that's not where Moses' faith is. It's not in how fervently he intercedes, although he does that intensely. Moses cried out to the Lord, but shows intensity. I mean, he's pleading with the Lord. Moses' faith is found in why God will answer, why he knows God will answer. It will be so that God will be known, so that you will know. Moses knows God's purpose is to be known. He will answer because he is Yahweh. He is, he is Israel's God, and that's the whole purpose, that, that he'll be known. It's God-aimed faith. And God-aimed faith will change your prayer life. When you pray, base your prayers on God, not your need. Now, don't get... Let me misunderstand. Let me say that again. When you pray, base your prayers on God, not your need. Now, God tells us to bring, bring our needs before Him because He's our Heavenly Father, and a father loves to meet the needs of, of His children. But know that He answers because He is our Father, and we are His children. And that's rooted in God's promise. And knowing that is praying with faith. 
Well, Moses prays and God answers and the plague is stopped. And the only thing left is the stench of Egypt's rotting idolatry. Little false gods piled up decaying in the sun. Look at verse 14. They gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. And yes, it did. So what does Pharaoh do? Look at verse 15. But, there's the contrast. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. When he saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. God had his attention, but when the trouble seemed to pass, he turned his back and went back to his old ways. Has God ever had your attention? Does he have your attention right now? He got my attention 20 years ago, and he he did it through consequences of my own sin. If God has your attention... There are two ways to respond. You can attempt to bargain with God. Oh Lord, if you will, then I will. And when the difficulty has passed, you'll go right back to what you're doing before, you were doing before. Or you can unconditionally surrender and accept his terms. His terms are, are you ready? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God's terms are not you doing anything. God's terms are placing your trust, believing in what God has already done. He doesn't lower His bar in any way. His commandments are the same. You failed to meet those commandments... God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and meets His own demands and then dies as a substitute, takes your punishment, your plague, and then offers you the record of righteousness even though you and I both are are unrighteous. His terms are grace alone. A substitute provided for your judgment unconditioned forgiveness for all of your sin and and a God who is not just powerful but is personal and will walk with you and keep you. But you have to come the same way that every man or woman has ever come by surrendering to Him and saying, God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. But if you're willing, you have my attention. Here's my life. I'm yours. You know what God will do if you'll do that? He'll say, I am willing. I am willing. And He'll save you. Let's bow your heads with me.
I'm going to invite our Burundi team up to pray over them. And as they're coming, this is your opportunity to respond. What happens when God gets our attention? and attempts to bargain with Him. He will show you mercy, but He will not negotiate. And you should be glad. You couldn't meet the terms of any negotiation that that you would even attempt to do. That's the whole point of the Gospel. Maybe the Lord has your attention today. Maybe He... Showing you who he is and what you need to do, you just you need to respond. Don't miss that last verse. When Pharaoh saw there was relief, today's the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. When relief comes, your attention may be turned right back to where it was before. And you can harden your heart. Father, as we come before You, we do thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Christ. Thank You for the message of the Gospel. Thank You that that You do get our attention through so many things. Thank You that sometimes that's even through pain or difficulty or consequences. And thank You, Lord, that Your terms are non-negotiable and they're mercy and grace. I do pray that all of us would look to You. If there's anyone here that doesn't know You personally, that they'd bow the knee to Jesus even today. In His name I pray. Amen.